is Carl. Don't be great. Don't be scared. It's Carl. It was dug up by men and women who work and live in the electorates of those who sit on... How dare you? You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words. Quickly, the emergency climate comes down to a single number. The concentration of carbon in our atmosphere. I'm a victim of this whole climate crisis, and I'm not ashamed to say so. Hi, I'm Oliver. Hi, I'm Asha. We would like to acknowledge the Rwandari people of the Kulin Nation on whose lands we are recording today. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and recognize their continuing connection to the land and waters on which we live. We will be speaking with Professor Jerry Nakazam today. Jerry is an associate professor in the Faculty of Law at Monash University. His research focuses on the intersections between environmental law, politics, history, and economics. He has written numerous articles and book chapters on international environmental treaties, focusing on biodiversity loss, climate negotiations, and plastic pollution regulation. He has also published a number of well-received books on topics including international environmental treaties and their normative treatment, nuclear waste, disposal in democratic states, on the phenomenon of ecoterrorism, global plastic pollution regulation, and forthcoming books on climate justice and the International Whaling Commission. Jerry holds a Bachelor of Arts and Law from Monash University, Master's in Environmental Science from Monash University, and a PhD from the University of Melbourne, focusing on the development of environmental norms within international environmental treaties. Without further ado, let's dive in. Welcome, Jerry. Would you like to tell us about yourself? Hi, everyone, and thanks for having me today. Yes, so my name is uh, Jerry Nagzam. I'm an associate professor at the Monash Law School, and my areas of speciality are primarily environmental law and policy, mostly in the international space, um, but some Australian environmental law as well. Uh, at the moment, my areas of research include things like um, climate change negotiations and Australia's regulatory approach to decarbonisation. I do a fair bit of work on uh, biodiversity loss at the international level with a particular emphasis on whales. And um, I do a fair bit of work most recently on plastic pollution regulation, both here in Australia and globally. And lastly, I'm interested with a colleague of mine in the politics department. We do work on environmental radicalism or sometimes called eco-terrorism, which is um, essentially people who commit violence on behalf of the environment, either against property or against uh, other humans. I guess to start off with, um, what inspired you to pursue a career in the research and academia sector, specifically in the area of environmental law? Sure. Um, it's a really good question. So I was a Monash Law graduate in the 1980s. And when I was essentially you guys, I had always assumed that I would uh, become a criminal barrister. So I went to law school, I just thought, I'm going to be a barrow. That's, that's what I was aiming to do. That's what I was interested in. In my final semester, I did international environmental law. And it was intriguing, but it wasn't... Um, it wasn't it wasn't my passion. I thought it was really interesting, but it wasn't passionate. Weirdly for me, and I will confess to being a bit of a nerd, 
I love um, pop culture and um, and science fiction. And at the time, I was reading an awful lot about science fiction that had a kind of environmental edge. And to be honest, it fascinated me. So it came time to choose. And the issues that were being raised in those books and what I was reading about at the time was just um, intriguing me as an intellectual exercise, but also something I thought was actually important for, for lawyers to be doing. So I thought I would attempt to work more in the environmental law space. So I came back to Monash and did a Masters of Environmental Science so I could actually talk to the scientists about these issues and have a greater understanding of them. And then I did a PhD in international environmental law and politics. In your opinion, what are some of the greatest challenges faced by a country today? Well, some of the greatest issues, and I think that the, to be first, I'd say if I was answering that question, I would go a bit broader and say that the issues that Australians face are those that we all face. In the problem you talk about, or sorry, the question you asked, you talk about the problem of anthropogenic climate change. So obviously that's the major issue that we're facing. But built within that is a whole bunch of other issues as well that are kind of linked to that. And they're things like loss of biodiversity. There's an increased use in plastic, which means that we're seeing a lot more plastic pollution, which we need to deal with. So I think all of these issues are important, not only to every Australian, but also to every global citizen. They're the three I've chosen to focus on. After all, um, everyone on this planet, we live on one planet. Um, whatever we do Correct. on one part of the earth, we'll indiscriminately affects everyone at the end of the day so that's um, right we definitely do need to do a better job of working together to look after our world and you did some research and written some books on the topic of nuclear waste disposal and since we're on the same breath of environmental justice um we have seen many instances of environmental injustice and also in extension, environmental racism, which is quite a contentious topic, mm. where minority and rural communities are subjected to the impacts of nuclear waste, such as the exports of waste from developed countries to developing countries. Um, in 2015, here in Australia as well, there was the nomination of the um, traditional land without consultation with their traditional owners that shocked the community. Besides the upcoming referendum, what are some ways that we can bridge this inequality between communities when it comes to dealing with issues like this? How can we uphold environmental justice in this area? Uh, that's such an interesting but such a complex question. I could probably try to answer it over the next three days. Yes. So first, first point of that is to sort of try to figure out what you mean by environmental justice. Are we talking about compensatory, redistribution? What are the issues? And, and there are many different definitions of what we mean by environmental justice. So well, your environmental justice may not be mine. And part of that also is that debate around, as you allude to, environmental racism. When it came to nuclear waste, one of the issues that's been there is that Unfortunately, just very quickly, since 1970, Australia has been trying to figure out where to put our nuclear waste in a repository. Now, Australia only has like low level and intermediate waste, which is mostly medical waste, but we still need a place to put it. We have not been successfully able to do so. So in 2015, that was the Tennant Creek space they were trying to put it there which is in the northern territory and obviously the indigenous um 
peoples of that area felt correctly that they hadn't been consulted. And so that basically that wasn't there. Recently, um, uh, you, just two weeks ago, so the previous Liberal government had attempted to put a, a, a nuclear waste repository in South Australia on private land. But the current Labor government has basically said that they will no longer put it there. They're back. They're going back to the the drawing board with attempting to find a place. So on the one hand, we need desperately a place to put it because it's sort of piling up at universities and hospitals and at the Lucas Heights nuclear uh, facility in Sydney. But on the other hand, it's the classic NIMBY, not in my backyard. Nobody wants a nuclear waste. Uh, repository anywhere near where they happen to be. And so I honestly don't know how we can resolve that. If we are going to, you're going to have to get what what we talked about in the book as community buy-in. It is possible in areas like in Spain have shown that if you get community support for what is happening, you may well end up um, being able to site a, a nuclear waste repository. But it's incredibly difficult. And again, so you're starting with the with the point that most people don't want it anywhere near them, that you need to involve desperately the Indigenous people because you're going to need to sort of get their permission, particularly post-Mabo, for the usage of that. And three, you're going to have to convince that it's in their own strategic interest to cite it, whether that be uh, providing for jobs, providing compensation, building schools, better facilities that are nearby. Yeah, I think it's so interesting that you mentioned the recent controversy surrounding the South Australia repository that Mm -hmm. they were trying to build. I did um, come across an article which touched on this Lucas Heights facility in Sydney, which I think is the only nuclear waste dump we have right now in Australia. Technically, it's a nuclear waste generator. We use it to generate the nuclear nuclear isotopes that we need for medical practice. Mm. So it's not just a waste facility, but unfortunately, because it is there, they tend to put some of the waste in that actual facility, which is kind of just in Sydney itself. Um. With that being the uh, waste repository right now, they mentioned that they were projected to run out of room for certain types of waste in 2027. Yep. So what are some sustainable alternatives that you can think, like short-term-wise, that we can address this nuclear waste in this country? Because it's increasing year upon year. Honestly, there are no short-term solutions to this. Uh, the, the reality is we need to find a repository and we need permission of the people who live there, whether that be Indigenous or non-Indigenous, to be able to do so. And as you point out, you're correct, we've only got about three years. So without that, what's going to happen is Lucas Heights is going to be filled. They're going to have to put another site somewhere, possibly military, because it's easier for them to control the federal government. But the reality is, as a matter of urgency, we need to get a a um, position. It's either that or send it overseas. There's also talk that with any of the the submarine, the nuclear submarines that we, uh, the the purchase contract that we've recently done, my understanding is we may also be responsible for the nuclear waste that's generated by those submarines. So that's a problem for a few decades from now. So we do need a repository and and the government needs to get started on it immediately. there's also been an increase in discourse around nuclear waste disposal in an international scale Mm -hmm. um, and the potential hazards it posed to the environment. 
um, following Japan's announcement to deposit treated nuclear waste from the Fukushima disaster, despite Japan's assurance that the, the country would adhere to international safety guidelines, there are still many who are not convinced and are still apprehensive about the, the safety of the test and the sheer volume of the waste that would be periodically disposed. In the grand scheme of things, along with many other countries disposing large amount of waste into the ocean, do you think this practice is sustainable? No. Nuclear waste, we're not allowed to dump nuclear waste in the oceans, and we haven't been since 1954. Now, the nuclear wastewater is an interesting one, and I must call out China here for being hypocritical about it, because China also releases its radioactive waters, technically treated, into the oceans. Now, as an, as an environmentalist, I have read some of the studies and they indicate that it's reasonably safe. But anytime you're dealing with radioactivity, we're not 100% sure of what the outcomes might be. I think it would be better for us not to release that into the oceans. Yeah. And that's true for any country, not just Japan. And because they have like certain thresholds that they cannot exceed, but even with such guidelines in place, um. If such practices are problematic, what alternatives can be proposed to deal with this nuclear waste? Well, the first one would be to stop using nuclear power, <laughs> would be my humble opinion, given that renewable energy is cheaper and comes without any of the problems of nuclear generation. Here in Australia, over one third of our electricity now is generated by renewables. Yet every year you read about that uh, the Conservatives and particularly from newspapers like The Australian, are very keen to promote building nuclear facilities. So my first thing would be to sort of say, phase them out. All right, nuclear waste, particularly at that level, some of it's going to be around for 10,000 years. Something will go wrong. It's just, you know, law of nature. So if we can't do that, then I think they will have to be stored somewhere in some form of repository. Yeah. So you can dehydrate the water to some extent and what's left behind you'll basically have to store somewhere safely yeah i think this is an interesting topic because um after all the ocean body is something that is shared among like different nations so how could international legal instruments promote better care of this shared ocean body that the reality is that we have the we have so many laws that relate to the ocean starting with UNCLOS, the law of the sea. So it would be a matter of basically ensuring that that, that is um, uh, as well enforced as it can be and that there are more provisions put in about it. To be honest, we've treated the oceans as a giant toilet. We basically dump a lot of our waste in there, whether it be plastic, whether it be sewerage, whether it be dumping from ships over overboard. We've done it for centuries. But given the scale of humanity at the moment, that is damaging the oceans. So we need to stop that practice. There are Then you can break it down into there are other types of um, conventions relating around to fisheries and the use of, of biodiversity, the new one, the uh, biodiversity beyond national jurisdictions, which is a new treaty that they're, that's being signed and ratified this year. You've also got mining that's occurring on the seabed floor, which is due to start at the end of the year for things like manganese nodules. So like any other like on land resource we've tended to use um, the oceans as a bluntly unsustainable resource for things like fisheries and various other things but at the same time we also treat it as a as a dumping ground and that can't continue so there are a lot of international laws out there and a number of them should be strengthened in my opinion 
to deal with such behaviours on what's known as the high seas, beyond national jurisdiction of, of waters. When you mention fisheries, I think it's quite interesting that the Japanese government wanted to deposit this nuclear waste into the Fukushima waters because there has been an uproar from the farmers, the fish farmers in that area, mm. that it would kind of increase stigma around their exports and that business would be very affected because they had such a hard time coming back up from the disaster and building up their reputation until now. And this would just make them go back a full circle, back to square one. I was wondering how would the government balance up when it comes to like depositing nuclear waste, economic interests and interests of public opinion? How does the government reconcile all of these factors? Okay, so I got a point there. China has already said to Japan, if you if you release the water, we won't buy any of your seafood for the foreseeable. Yeah. And they might have a well, they might have a case, particularly because they could go, if it's challenged in the World Trade Organization, there is an exemption there, Article 20, that allows states to say there is a health component to the environment. All right. So how they reconcile it, they, they're going to argue it's perfectly safe to do so and it's within range and it's just a a controlled uh, waste release in the same way they put sewerage into the ocean. What is everyone worried about? If they are truly concerned about it, then they might provide compensation to the fishers and the local villagers sort of thing who might uh, might find themselves disadvantaged by what's going on because they can no longer export their market. Or they might agree just to buy all the, the fish and, and sell it into the domestic Japanese market. I wouldn't have done it, so I don't think I'm not sure how they could resolve this. In a generation where climate change is advancing at unprecedented rate, do you think that traditional environmental activism is slowly treading down the path of radical environmentalism and an extension uh, this stage, ecoterrorism? This no, is the short answer to that. So if you look at some of the other groups that are traditionally considered to be environmentally radical um, or eco-terrorist groups, they were willing to commit violence against property. So they might burn down a ski chalet or they would destroy uh, like machinery at a, at a work site. Or in some cases, uh, the Animal Liberation Front people targeted scientists who were involved in animal experimentation. At this stage, I would say that you are seeing what we would call civil disobedience. So people are gluing themselves to pictures or they're locking themselves onto the road or they're causing a nuisance. Now, the the problem is, which you allude to in that is, if people feel that their views are not being legitimately heard by the political system and that the crisis is urgent, which we all, by, by your question, yeah, admits that the, it is an urgent problem that we need to deal with climate change. If people feel that it's not being dealt with in a, in a timely manner, in a legitimate manner, then people may indeed do those types of uh, violent acts on behalf of their cause. But I can say at this stage, I've seen no evidence that any of the climate activists are interested in that. And generally speaking, uh, climate activists or environmental activists tend to believe that life is important. So they don't, as a general rule, uh, attack others. They see this as some sort of moral dichotomy. How do we, how do we prove our case it would just become as bad as the people we're arguing against if we attack them physically. Right? So most of them are very cautious. 
However, they are willing, these groups, to commit um, ecotage, which is, you know, in environmental or ecological attacks against property. So I would expect if we do not see government action that is moving fast enough for these people, that a number of them will split off, form a more radical group and look possibly to attack property. No evidence to date, though. Let me be very clear. Despite negative feedback and media coverage from the public, why do you think the radical environmental groups continue to engage in such behaviour to raise awareness for the cause? Do you think we will ever get a unified solution? I'm not sure we'll ever get a unified solution given our human stench. The reality is that these groups, in essence, they're not not particularly radical at the moment, sort of thing. So Extinction Rebellion and groups like that are not engaging in radical act. But the reality is how effective they are that's a difficult question. So they may feel they're being effective because they are calling attention to their cause. So, you know, the fact that we've heard of these events that are occurring, they get worldwide publicity. On the other hand, some of the surveys around that indicate that people find such behaviours completely obnoxious and doesn't help the cause. So there's no correct answer here. It's whether or not you you are convinced that you want to convince people of the need to do this and these actions do it. Now, there is a space for radical action sometimes because it does, and there is some evidence for this, indicate that if you do radical action, sort of other groups uh, like governments and, and businesses in some cases might be willing to deal with less radical groups. So some academics have pointed out that perhaps what we need to do is, in essence, uh, have a space for radical action because that leads to um, corporations or governments being willing, in a sense, to actually engage with the non-radical groups. So I can't answer the question much as I would like to because it depends on the situation and it depends really whether people believe in the broader community that such actions are justified and sympathise with them. At the moment, I can't see any real evidence that's occurring. So at best, what's happening is that the attention is being called to the issue of climate change. Yes, I believe that that's exactly right. I guess from a student's standpoint, the limits of what we can do without any proper uh, education uh, in law. Um, what would you say that uh, for the great majority of Australian students and international uh, young adults in advocating their voice and their worries and their concerns on uh, the pressing issues of climate change and environmental injustices? I would say don't give up, that we don't have time for what is sometimes called the politics of despair, which is the idea that, oh, this is so overwhelming. When I teach the climate law class that I do, after the first few weeks, you can almost feel the the room is just so depressed because to you have to describe what the problem is. It can seem completely overwhelming. The, 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 the issue here is it's really not. And providing we have the, I guess, social willingness to engage and resolve this, there is plenty of scope, I think, for young people and old people like myself to basically try to resolve this issue in a timely manner. But if we just give up and say it's too overwhelming, the world's going down, I, get, I see pictures of, you know, bushfires and flooding and, and bleaching of coral off Florida, we cannot, we don't have time to give up. If we do, then it really will happen.
just moving on to our next section on the loss of biodiversity. Uh, the Worldwide Fund for Nature Australia has reported our country uh, has the most mammal extinctions in the world and identified habit loss and also climate change uh, to be among the top factors explaining our observation of, uh, I guess, eco-terrorism. With the recent uh, rollout of the Nature Positive Plan to include initiatives such as issuing a biodiversity certificate, what do you think are some of the gaps, in your opinion, that have yet to be addressed? And uh, second part of this question, in what other ways do you think um, that may help mitigate the loss of biodiversity and add to the conservation efforts, perhaps from a legislative policy angle? Right. Well, let's start with the question one first. The first thing we have to establish is that in Australia, we don't know how much biodiversity we're losing. So before we get to the legal and policy aspects of it, we honestly don't have a complete picture of what our loss will be. So the WWF report indicates to mammals, and is absolutely correct, but there are lots of other species, birds, insects, etc etc that are in on danger uh, in danger of becoming extinct so the first thing we do the old epbc environmental protection um act uh, basically said within it the government had to maintain and uh, sort of biodiversity register determining what was going on but they have not yet been able to do it so they haven't put the resources into that second issue the epbc act i refer to the one from 1999 it was up for review a few years ago, and it has proved not to be fit for purpose. Now, I actually personally think that's a mistake, because at the state level, there's often uh, an impetus for governments to be working on, more so than sometimes at the federal level, to actually try to um, put in place large developments all right, at the expense of the environment, which will lead to biodiversity loss. So ergo, I think it needs to be, the, the second thing we need to do is improve the EPBC Act. Now, the current government says that they're working on that, and that's okay. The other things you're talking about, they're fine, but they're too soon to know whether they'll be effective, and they really need to be part of a larger review of environmental law, both at the federal level and at the state level. And the other thing I'd say is, well, we need to basically take more into account the fact that climate law, uh, climate loss or climate change should actually be accorded an important role in determining projects going forward. So it should be a matter of national significance under the EPBC Act. What do you think are like some ways that um, the government should have to reform the EPBC Act? It's not my area, not my true area of expertise. Oh. There are probably others out there who can really talk to it. But again, um, putting in putting in place the climate change is a, a more thing. I think uh, more merits review would be important as mm. well. Often, what happens in these things is trying to review a decision of the minister has proved to be incredibly problematic. Yeah, and I've read somewhere that um, there was just one shortcoming in the uh, in the review is that they don't include a merits review but only a judicial review. Exactly. And so, yeah. And, and so I think that's a major flaw with it. Mm. You could also, there's a greater place if you, if you put me on the plate for strategic environmental impact assessment, which is looking at the, so the, the classic example there is if I build one sort of pig farm, 
then we look at it individually. What we need to do is give a greater role to the fact there could be 20 pig farms in an area, but if you're only giving permission one by one, you're not capturing the true strategic cost that's involved. There's so many areas we could speak about this. There's forests, there's biodiversity loss, but reviewing the EPBC Act and making it more fit for purpose would be good. Right. Here in Victoria, I'm a big advocate for doing what they have in New South Wales, which is an environment and land court. We don't have one in Victoria. We should. Mm. All right. Specialist judges who understand these issues. Thank you, Jerry. Just one more question on the topic. We know that um, there's a lot of action needed to be um, done uh, in the federal level, state level, but also on the individual level as well. I guess, um, what do you think are some successful examples of conservation strategies or conservation legislature that have effectively halted or reversed biodiversity loss in Australia or perhaps even abroad? There are none in Australia. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. They can be very small scale ones where you might do it at a very local level. But once you start scaling it up, you see very quickly that we have not been able to reverse biodiversity loss. And bluntly at the global level, same issues. So if you, the global uh, treaty on biodiversity sort of thing, the CBD, is quite clear that we have not managed to prevent biodiversity loss at a global scale. All right. So yes, I'm sure we can point to some areas we say we, we protected that forest, et cetera, et cetera. But the reality is if we look at the scale of what we are doing in terms of deforestation, um, you know, um, fishing the oceans to a point where a number of species are going extinct or a near extinction, we have not managed to reverse this loss. So sorry, it is a really key area, but and I wish I could give more hope to to the, to the listeners. It, it, is a, it is unfortunately an area that requires a great deal of um, improvement by policymakers. And I also noticed that um, that you are particularly passionate about the issue on plastic pollution. Ah. Now, um, many international instruments, treaties that have been enacted that touch on regulating plastic production and plastic waste from the Basel Convention to the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. Um, there has been a recent topic about the plastic treaty negotiations in Paris from the UN. Now, many I was have, there, some, so yes, I saw it. <laughs> yeah, and so some people have criticised that the contents from this, because the Basel Convention is internationally binding, and so they were worried that you know, having this new treaty negotiation is just going to be a repeat of the Basel Convention. How effective yeah. do you think that this legislation will be? Oh, well, that's, a, that, that's a relatively silly criticism. So the Basel Convention only applies to trade. So in, uh, so in 2019, the Basel Convention uh, participants, um, the delegates there, basically declared that plastic should be a hazardous waste. So it falls under the Basel Convention. But that realistically only means that importing states uh, have greater say in rejecting plastics um, as, as, a, as a, a now hazardous waste, and they require more paperwork. That doesn't mean that there still isn't a trade in that. Interestingly, the year before, China and a number of Southeast Asian countries said to Australia, we will no longer take your plastic and mixed waste. And they don't, which left Australia in a, in a 
bad situation because we don't have proper recycling facilities here for plastic. We pretended that we were sending it overseas to China and others to be recycled. So Australia's plastic waste recycling is only about 9%. The government this year said it had climbed to 10%, all right, which is about the global average. So about 90% of our plastic waste is either incinerated or, honestly, it's put in landfill. So we've got that issue. So the Basel Convention won't, the, the global plastic treaty negotiations that are currently taking place are interesting. You alluded before to plastic production. Now, the reality is all the international laws that are out there that relate to plastic only relate to plastic waste, not to production. But the new plastic treaty, which is only got two years to, to which to be created theoretically, and so they're about halfway through, the next meeting's in Nairobi in November, that also theoretically is looking at not only the problem of plastic waste at an international level, but also the issue of plastic production. And what it wants to do is, is um, um, patent itself on the uh, Minamata Convention on Mercury and um, the sort of uh, Montreal Protocol on Ozone, which basically calls for nation states to actually over time reduce the amount of plastic we are producing. Because the figures indicate that by 2040, at current rates going up, we will triple the amount of pl plastic we produce. So countries like Australia and what's called the High Ambition Coalition are arguing that what we need to do is not only deal with the problem of waste, but we that's not that's only part of the issue. We also need need to deal with the problem of plastic pr uh, production. So yeah. so in reality, you've got uh, countries that basically want to reduce that plastic production over time. There are other states led by. At this stage, Saudi Arabia, who produces petrol, and we turn petrol or petroleum products into plastic, all right, because it's hydro, um, it's a hydrocarbon. So you, you've got that, you've got the United States, you've got China, probably India, um, who are basically the major plastic producers, or in India's case, wish to be, who are looking to basically base any global plastics treaty on only the question of waste. But particularly, they want to patent it after the Paris um, uh, Accord or Treaty of 2015, which says that states only have to do voluntary action. The recent bidding negotiation is still at a very premature stage right now. Mm -hmm. and But the UN has set out that they aim to cut plastic pollution by 80% mm -hmm. by 2040. Are you optimistic about this number? Well, given the fact that it come, uh, states in the United States, in like Texas and various other more Republican areas, are busy building petrochemical sites to make more plastic, I'm not 100% sure that I am that confident that I'm optimistic. The mm -hmm. reality is unless the treaty comes into force and America signs it, which is unfortunately highly unlikely, because uh, under U.S. Uh, congressional rules, you would need 60 senators to ratify. Mm. I do not see that occurring given the current state of the Senate and next year in particular, given how favourable the map is to Republicans at the Senate level, it's more likely that they will be in control of the Senate. So there's 
no chance that they would do certain activities within that if they haven't ratified, but it is going to limit their either legitimacy or they're going to be more easily challenged by plastic producers. So it will depend whether or not producer states get involved and actually agree to to whatever treaty is created. I guess just to kind of this up, you mentioned in your 2020, there's a 2020 article that all the international instruments that concern plastic pollution, they are just kind of drafted in a very piecemeal fashion. Mm-hmm. And that an ideal treaty would be verified by things like scientific body and supported by the global fund, among others. How does an ideal piece of legislation to combat plastic pollution look like for you? Technically, not an ideal piece of legislation. It would be an ideal treaty. So the mm. treaty itself, in that sense, would need scientists who basically would be able to tell us what types of plastics are out there, so what's the scale of the problem, but also what, if anything, can replace what's going on. We would need most good environmental treaties have a very strong scientific body attached to it that provide independent advice about the the problem and what are some of the solutions that states could have in terms of the technologies that might be out there so that um, particularly lesser developed countries can have that technology. So the question then becomes of funding. So for a lot of lesser developed countries who are going to be stuck with a bunch of plastic waste, residual sort of plastic waste, or potentially new plastic waste, how is that going to be cleaned up and who's going to pay the costs of that? Will it be the companies? Will it be developed countries who produce that that plastic? Or will they have to fund it? So it, for us in the in international environmental treaty space, the questions are always around who's going to pay for it. That's right. Thank you, Jerry. Um, just to finish off for today, can we ask you some closing questions? Sure, of course. With climate change and loss of biodiversity advancing at unprecedented speeds, do you see a silver lining about our future of our environment? I'm not sure I see a silver lining as such, but I, I have to believe, and you should as well, and hopefully your listeners can, that, that, that it will get better. Your generation compared to my generation knows more about these environmental issues. We were never talked we never talked about them, whether at primary school, high school, or realistically not much at university as well. But the reality is everybody now knows about the issues of climate change and biodiversity loss. And I think most people are broadly supportive of action to to change that. So I am hopeful that we will resolve some of these issues. The question is, can we do it in a timely enough fashion? That's exactly right. Um, what do you think everyday people like working adults or students can do in their capacity to help in this fight against climate change? Well, they can do what they can to their capacity. So uh, be aware of the issue, perhaps uh, vote on the issue is important at, the, at that issue, contribute funds to sort of help if they can, charitable donations, give of their time. If you're a, if you're a law student, there are environmental law groups out there who could use your expertise, the Environmental Defender's Office. There are so many avenues for people to give either of their time, their expertise or their money. So don't be afraid or, as we keep talking about, to uh, basically know and understand that every little bit helps and that it will take a lot of us, if not the majority of us, to actually deal with these issues. 
Yes, we should definitely all work towards. For some of us listeners and some of us uh, as law students who want to pursue a career in the environmental law sector, do you have any advice or any words of wisdom or guidance for us? It would be more along the fact that that at the moment there are more avenues for people to pursue environmental interests and environmental law than ever before, certainly more than me when I was in the 1980s. So there, as I mentioned before, there are lots of environmental groups that need lawyers. There are lots of the environmental defenders office. There is a national environmental law association comprising environmental practitioners and academics who come together. And if people are interested, the meeting I think is in early October at Melbourne Law School this year. So people can go along and actually talk to the people who are working in this space and maybe contribute. So there are a lot of avenues. There are internships with everything from the United Nations Environmental Program to various bodies who are interested in this space. There are so many courses available to them now, both in the law school itself, but master's programs overseas, elsewhere in Australia, that focus on environmental issues, sustainability, environmental law, and diplomatic stuff. They're all available to students. So there is a lot of avenues. I would say pick the one that's of most interest to you and basically go for it. Don't be afraid to do so. The reality is um, being an environmental lawyer, I think, is an important job. And I hope more students, particularly law students, actually uh, are willing to take that sort of role on in the future. We're going to need them too. We would like to thank you on behalf of the Law Student Society and also the Environmental Justice Group for really uh, allowing us to interview you and also uh, let you share some of your words of wisdom and also let us hear about your journey and how we, in all of our lives, we can all contribute to a unified solution. Mm-hmm.